HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Appeal, helping you enjoy your fruits and vegetables at peak freshness and reduce food waste. Learn more at appeal.com. Welcome to The Big Food Question, a podcast exploring the most urgent questions from a food industry in crisis. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, Executive Director of Heritage Radio Network. As we near the end of 2020, we're asking, what are the top policy priorities as we look towards the new year and the new administration? This episode is one of a three-part miniseries created in collaboration with the Rockefeller Foundation. To learn more about the Foundation's food initiative and global commitments, visit rockefellerfoundation.org slash commitment slash food. U.S. food policy is complicated in any year, and the Biden administration faces an especially tumultuous and challenging transition. Today, we'll look at three key policy areas and talk to experts about pathways for investing in regional agriculture, improving food access and food sovereignty for tribal nations, and saving independent restaurants. The pandemic created conditions for governments to show really how nimble and creative they can be in an emergency. And while we're certainly in one, many of the conditions we're mobilized in response to are chronic and have been prevalent in low-income communities for generations. When we're talking about these larger 30,000-foot scale policy changes, you know, our perspective is that came from and is hopefully going to end up going right back to the ground to help somebody out. So we can never lose sight of that. Oh, testifying in front of Congress was probably the scariest thing I've ever done uh, in my entire life. You know, and I've done a lot of television. I'm an Iron Chef in Canada. Uh, you know, I'm used to competitions, but sitting in front of my screen and looking at all these Congress people and sort of following these very specific rules about how it's done and realizing that I basically had the weight of 500,000 independent uh, restaurants on my shoulders. It was terrifying. In March 2020, as lockdown orders went into place, our lives and many aspects of our food system were turned upside down. Grocery store staff were suddenly recognized as essential workers. Cracks in the supply chain broke open, and the possibility of shortages loomed large. Over 100,000 restaurants closed their doors permanently. 
and restaurant operators, chefs, and servers became activists and lobbyists in the fight for federal relief. Eaters across the country became newly reliant on their home cooking skills, but as unemployment rose, so did food insecurity. People were confronted with the importance of regional agriculture as well as safety nets like the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, known as SNAP or food stamps, and subsidized school meals. The pandemic underscored the ways that strong regional food systems and safety net programs can go hand in hand to foster a more resilient food system. Today's episode looks closely at the connection between national policy and local food. We explore three federal policy priorities that would strengthen regional food systems and preserve local culinary culture. Some problems we'll explore arose during the pandemic, while others have plagued our country long before 2020. But each policy priority can gather momentum from this moment of upheaval as we all search for ways to learn from the past nine months and create positive change. Let's start with agriculture. We need to acknowledge the pain, discrimination, uh, the disinvestment, exploitation that people are feeling in both urban and rural places. This is Hailey Johnston, co-founder of The Common Market. From the beginning, we've been working with anchor institutions, which are organizations that are set up for the public good to serve communities like schools and hospitals, elder care, colleges and universities, and providing food as a part of their service, often funded by taxpayer dollars. Um, The Common Market connects those institutions and these anchors with food from uh, family farms that we work with, which are often independent and family-owned, usually around 250 acres, and often who have communities to practices that promote promote social and environmental sustainability. The Common Market operates across the Mid-Atlantic, as well as in Georgia and Texas. The one challenge I'd say that we experience collectively across all geographies is a lack of fair uh, and consistent wholesale market opportunities, often in part because of the pursuit of cheap food within anchor institution procurement. The common market's mission is to combat this problem. Hailey wants to see a bigger market for independent farmers and to connect urban communities with fresh and healthy food. By forging a link between regional producers and what he calls urban anchor institutions, the common market aims to do just that. But Hailey would agree that one organization alone cannot change our food system. Improved policy could make Hailey's vision possible on a much broader scale. Many federal contracts and municipal contracts and certainly uh, bids for school food are often focused on lowest pricing as the primary means of decision making. And we think that that is something that needs to change in order to support um, rebuilding vibrant regional food systems and building, honestly, uh, healthy communities and, and trust across geography. By exclusively considering what producers can offer the lowest price, independent growers are left out. And problematic patterns become more and more deeply entrenched in our food system at large. Historically, there's been uh, a focus on low price and public contracts that doesn't include the externality uh, or long-term cost to society. And there's been a focus, uh, I think, at the U.S. government level on industrial-scale agriculture for decades under the premise of needing to feed the world and mass production of low-cost calories. And we're now seeing the impacts of this policy and uh, tremendous costs 
um, that we now have to pay globally in an evolving climate catastrophe, um, reduced lifespans uh, due to chronic disease and the gutting of rural society and economies alongside other challenges. So um, food that is promoted as cheap, that is subsidized by our federal government, is only externalizing or delaying its real costs. And unfortunately, the only beneficiaries of this approach are the large corporate interests that are benefiting from, from the extract, extractive system. And these beneficiaries, from in our experience, have been the greatest impediment to changing federal policy. Um, and with the profits extracted from land, labor, and consumers, they spend mightily to shape policy and elect politicians who will defend their interests and the status quo. The 2014 Farm Bill did a pilot program that would allow geographic preference in the procurement of produce using USDA funding, but low cost has remained the priority. Hiley wants federal contracts to take a more holistic approach when selecting partners to work with. This would bolster the market for independent farmers and create greater transparency for eaters. And when we can bring daylight to who and how our food is grown alongside who is supporting this production, um, there's a propensity to treat those relationships with greater care. And one begins to understand that cheap food products come about um, largely through exploitation. So we need to include regional sourcing, nutrition quality, restorative production systems, valued workforce, humane treatment of animals, and other community values. Um, And we need to work toward a system that supports the real cost of food production where public dollars uh, can be used in a way that maximizes public good. This idea has the potential to dramatically shift the distribution of both food and federal dollars, but it doesn't require major legislative changes. How do we make modest adjustments to existing uh, programs, to existing policies? Because even in a normal year, the USDA buys billions of dollars of food from American farmers. Um, And it's the small changes in procurement policy that could immediately liberate millions of dollars to really reinvigorate rural economies by supporting small and mid-sized family farms um, and also providing fresh, nutritious, healthy food to the hungry, including hard-to-reach urban and rural communities. As individual states mobilized to support small farms at the onset of the pandemic, they offered an early model for federal implementation. We saw firsthand how supply chain disruption devastated our farmers. The small acreage dairy farmers that we work with were the first ones to lose sales and forced to pour their milk back into the fields. And as many of our dairy farmers say, you can't just turn off the cows, right? Uh, When demand changes, the, the cows just keep producing. Um, And as New York was hit hardest and earliest by COVID, they responded immediately by creating innovative regional purchasing and food distribution programs to meet the need of the food insecurity challenges of its most vulnerable people. So in response to an RFP that New York City put out and resulting contracts for uh, us to provide pantry boxes, New York City helped save these multi-generational dairy farms um, while nourishing recipients with the highest quality Uh, yogurts, cheeses, and whole milks. While they needed support from policymakers, ultimately small farmers proved how nimble they can be. We definitely believe that it was harder for the large-scale conventional uh, supply chains and and agricultural systems to respond to the pandemic. What we saw is in part because of the conditions that they create through uh, through their scale and consolidation. There were obvious and well-documented health challenges that were experienced by workers and um, challenging conditions for frontline workers in in meatpacking and and other industries. But just also, that kind of consolidation did not facilitate 
meaningful and and responsive change to the conditions on the ground as as the markets change so rapidly as a result of COVID. And what we were able to see was um, much greater resiliency and and creativity and nimbleness uh, on the part of small and mid-scale family farms in different regions all across the country. And so having that sort of more decentralized, uh, less consolidated regional food systems allowed for more activity and um, and regional response and creativity to the to the needs on the ground in different places. Changes have also already made their way to the USDA, which launched a promising pilot program during the pandemic. The Farmers to Families Food Box program was exciting. It was a, a an incredibly responsive and creative program and policy put in place by the USDA to support procurement from small mid-scale family farms around the country and the immediate redistribution of that food to the neediest families. And so the USDA remarkably mobilized uh, over $3 billion within a month's time, created the, uh, the solicitation and, um, and approved contracts uh, for over 200 vendors around the country to play this intermediate ro- intermediary role connecting uh, these, these family farms and, and different community members, but largely food insecure people, in some, in some instances through food banks, in other instances through community-based organizations, um, in our experience often also through anchor institutions that had to pivot their models to deliver healthful food to their food insecure constituents. To strengthen the connections between farms and the communities they serve, new infrastructure is needed. One of the significant investments and um, policy interventions that we're excited to see in the upcoming administration um, is a renewed uh, regional food system infrastructure investment. Um, And this is most often referenced in terms of roads and bridges uh, as infrastructure investment. Um, Though infrastructure is a critical component of all systems, and when we think about healthcare and education, communications, or energy, Nearly all are interconnected, um, and all require some degree of public subsidy. And what we want to see is the same done with regional food systems. Um, Investments in regional-scale processing, aggregation, and distribution infrastructure. And we think, though, that the greatest amount of change with respect to regional procurement decisions is going to happen when there are also layers of legislation A sustainable system must include support at every level, but the federal government certainly plays a critical role in setting the agenda. We see the opportunity to advocate for this kind of policy change in the in the Biden administration really at a number of different levels. I think USDA first and foremost has to recognize the opportunity uh, to shift existing policies and programs in support of local and regional food systems um, and reorient more of the USDA budget in support of small family farmers, mid-scale family farmers. President-elect Joe Biden's pick for Secretary of Agriculture is already raising eyebrows among advocates for independent farms. Tom Vilsack served as the head of the USDA in the Obama administration and afterwards accepted a position as the chief executive of the U.S. Dairy Export Council, an organization representing the interests of some of the largest dairy producers and processors but highly remains hopeful. The truth is, regardless of who's selected as Secretary of Agriculture, we need to hold them accountable uh, to the needs of communities and people. And 
in particular within the USDA, you know, a department that was created, as I believe Lincoln said, as the people's department. We need to make the USDA more accountable to the rest of America. It's not just a a department or an agency that exists for the benefit of farmers. This is one of the most important, if not the most important, uh, department in our federal government. The USDA is the epicenter of agricultural policy, spearheading legislation surrounding food access and rural development. In our next segment, we'll zoom in on a policy priority that perfectly captures how these three issues intersect for tribal nations. Let's set our sights on 2023, when the next farm bill could improve food sovereignty for indigenous communities. The pandemic has brought the importance of regional agriculture into focus this year. As we explore ways for the federal government to invest in local communities, it's important to recognize that there won't be a one-size-fits-all approach. Our next guest wants to assure that as we carve out a greater market for local producers, tribal nations and native farmers receive equitable investment from the federal government. Hi, my name is Colby Duran. I'm the Director of Policy and Government Relations for the Intertribal Agriculture Council. Its mission is to pursue and promote the conservation, development, and use of agriculture resources for the betterment of Native people. Tribal nations in the U.S. face unique barriers in accessing a range of government services. Some of the different things that you see when tribes' uh, land was was taken, um, ceded, tribes were removed, um, they're often in areas that are very remote um, and uh, harder to access. You could also look at the uh, infrastructure that's built in this country as well, too. For example, if you were to take a map of where railroads are, are built and were built, most of those go either around or directly through uh, tribal lands. Same thing with highways as well, too. So either they go around them, but they don't have any offshoots or spokes that go and service them. So these types of federal infrastructures were just really built to just not service tribal governments. This extends to issues of food access. If you were to look at a map of where tribal governments are located, where their lands are currently located, um, where there's food insecurity uh, throughout the country, it means low access to grocery stores or transportation to stores that, to purchase food or to markets. Those maps fit right on top of each other. Some support systems are already in place to address these barriers. For instance, rural or remote communities often lack meaningful access to SNAP or food stamps because grocery stores or benefit offices are too far away. The Food Distribution Program on Indian Reservations, or FUDPR, is an alternative to SNAP that provides food packages to families on reservations. But Colby sees another way to increase food access and stimulate local economies. However, if you take the map of where food is being produced in Indian country and where tribal producers are producing food, it fits on that exact same map. So we have to address that problem of the broken food system to where there should be no reason why there is a producer producing or growing or raising food right across the street from a place where someone is going hungry and doesn't have access to that. To support growers and bridge this gap, Colby has a proposal. Some of the things that we're looking to do really center around the idea of supporting deferral of principal payments uh, for producers that receive uh, federal loans um, for their production, and that is essentially allowing them to be able to, to, to immediately defer their loan principal. 
Deferring the principal payment on a loan and allowing farmers to simply pay interest gives growers more time and greater stability. What this really uh, does is it provides money that the producer was um, having to, to go pay, um, but it keeps it in their pocket so that they can then reinvest that into what they're doing and help support their production um, and, and do different things to be able to help not only uh, their production, but also be able to um, keep their operations going. Recently, the USDA's Farm Service Agency, or FSA, made a similar policy allowance for farmers impacted by COVID-19. In May, the agency expanded their disaster set-aside program, which is typically used during natural disasters to allow farmers to set their next loan payment aside. Farmers affected by the pandemic are now eligible to take advantage of the same flexibility. Colby is advocating for a broader application of this model that would allow for a longer deferral period and apply to any borrower. When we're talking about deferring principal payments, we're talking about for all of FSA's lending programs. The FSA offers a range of loans to help growers start and maintain their farm. There are ownership loans, operating loans, loans for young farmers, and for minority and women farmers. There are also Native American tribal loans that assist Native farmers to acquire and maintain land within a tribal reservation. These things don't really have a cost. These, this money is already deployed out there. It's just a deferment on a payment. So if you were to do this across at least all of the FSA lending, um, you could actually infuse about a billion dollars worth of capital already in there that doesn't have a true cost to the taxpayer. And that's something that is truly food focused, truly producer focused. And so by having a look at how we go about uh, making those types of investments using the money that's already deployed is a way of being able to try to support not only those producers and what they're doing, but looking at how you're lending to them and how they can really be empowered and be invested in what they're doing versus looking at a way of kind of almost extractive capital where you're deploying capital for the sake of just getting back a return on that investment dollar-wise. Colby suggests that policies be put in place to offer financial relief to farmers across the country. This would provide critically needed support to Native food producers as well as to the communities they serve. A lot of uh, tribal communities and tribal governments exist in both places that are food deserts, have food insecurity, but are also credit deserts. So like what, what would end up hopefully happening in, in something like this is that you would be able to um, <clears throat> provide additional support for someone to grow their food. Then they would be able to build out the infrastructure where they would have a place to do any type of additional work that needed to be done to turn it into a consumer product or to further it a little bit long in the process. And then you would have the place for that <clears throat> food item to be sold to a to a to to a, a customer right there locally, which reduces costs, uh, uh, helps support some address some of the um, <clears throat> issues of transportation, uh, getting food from different places, makes that food system incredibly local, and continues to invest money locally in that community. This shift would have an immediate impact on food production and processing. It may also prove to be a significant boon for tribal economies in the long run. One of the larger things you see in issues is, is that um, um, for most healthy economies, uh, a dollar needs to cycle through them about six times. In a lot of places in Indian country, a dollar cycles through once, if that. So if you're able to start to expand upon and say, okay, we now see that um, based upon the U.S. food dollar that 
about seven cents, seven to eight cents of that final food dollar that gets spent in a grocery store actually goes to the producer. But if they're able to take those initial steps that goes into uh, you know, for, for further processing in the larger sense of the term to make it market ready, building the market for it, doing the transportation, then that dollar that gets, that gets spent, they capture about three or four times that back. And at the same time, that dollar that gets captured back stays in the community. So then you're generating more jobs, you're generating more um, activity, you're helping to do that, and at the same time, you're helping provide local healthier food. So by making those types of investments, you're doing that. Colby's proposal doesn't require increased grant funding or larger loans, but deferring payments is still tied to funding decisions. Um, these FSA payments and programs are tied to um, farm bill funding. Um, USDA does have some uh, flexibility in its uh, in its programs, particularly in FSA and lending programs, where you're able to to try to make these deferrals. So we think that this is a very strong step that USDA can take to to really support tribal producers and all producers right now to help their operations continue to go. The Farm Bill is the primary piece of federal legislation governing food and agriculture. And it's a critical part of the Intertribal Agriculture Council's mission. With the Intertribal Agriculture Council's long history of being involved in supporting tribal producers, there's also a long history of doing advocacy on behalf of the 574 federally recognized um, tribal governments and native producers in the Farm Bill since about the 1990s. A new Farm Bill is passed every five years. The last one was passed in 2018. Over 170 tribes joined what we, became, what we called the Native Farm Bill Coalition. And that really um, led to um, strong engagement across um, about 15 different national tribal organizations and talking to um, folks on the Hill and also talking with USDA and saying this is what would help drive food access and food production in Indian country. And because of that effort, the 2018 Farm Bill included 63 tribal-specific provisions. But as soon as the 2018 Farm Bill was passed, and the ink was just about dry on, on it when it was signed, we already were thinking towards the 2023 Farm Bill because we know that those uh, pieces of, of legislation, those ideas take years to develop. The next Farm Bill is slated for 2023, but it will begin taking shape soon after Biden's inauguration. It looks like folks that are going to be in leadership in agriculture on the Hill are already saying, we're going to start developing the 2023 Farm Bill starting in 2021 very early on. I think uh, in, the, in what's been put out so far uh, by, the, by the Biden campaign and transition team, uh, we've been able to see uh, a, a pretty comprehensive Indian country policy that includes agriculture. And so I think that's a, that's a pretty encouraging um, mark to be able to set that, that they're coming in uh, to this administration, looking at the importance of, of not only supporting tribal governments, but also looking at agriculture as an important tenant of that too. As an advocate, Colby strives to maintain a balanced perspective that captures the very personal impact policy can have, as well as the political significance of making progress for Native people. This policy change comes about because there was a producer or there was a tribal government somewhere that couldn't do something because of how the law is structured or that tribes weren't, weren't acknowledged as being eligible for this program so they can't serve their people using it. So then how do we go about solving that problem? 
and I would say overall across the country. I think we're at a moment of time where there's a lot of acknowledgement um, of, of past wrongs, idea, uh, the idea of reconciliation. Um, how do we get into ideas of, 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 of breaking these this ideas of systemic racism and injustices? But we really need to take those conversations, acknowledge them, and turn them into action. We'll be right back after a short break to address a third and most pressing policy priority, one that millions of people had desperately hoped to see passed before the end of the year. This episode is brought to you by Appeal. Here at HRN, we care about reducing waste across our food system, from farms to home kitchens. We know that about half of the produce we grow ends up in the trash. We all want to enjoy produce at peak freshness and reduce the amount that gets thrown away. That's where Appeal comes in. Appeal is a plant-based protective layer that helps produce last up to twice as long. It's edible, invisible, and imitates how peels naturally protect fruits and vegetables. Because here's the thing, less waste doesn't just mean we're throwing less food away. It also means we waste less water, energy, and other resources that go into growing produce. Appeal works with nature to reduce waste across the food system from the farm to the kitchen. Appeal helps us conserve our precious resources to ensure we have fresh food to meet our growing need. Appeal. Food gone good. Learn more at appeal.com. Welcome back to The Big Food Question. In the first part of this episode, we took a deep dive into policies that invest in the resilience of regional agriculture. Now, we'll look at another fundamental aspect of local culinary culture, independent restaurants. Before this year, the bedrock of the restaurant business was intimate indoor dining. Now the pandemic has turned this model on its head. We spoke to chef Amanda Cohen about the impact on the industry and what on earth can be done about it. Amanda is the chef and owner of Dirt Candy, an all-vegetable restaurant in Manhattan. Right now, we're already at 2 million unemployed restaurant workers, but that number will skyrocket if we don't get the aid. And the money that we put back into the economy is just going to disappear. After months of negotiation, Congress finally agreed to pass a second coronavirus relief bill that includes $900 billion of aid to stimulate the economy. Amanda has been organizing since March, to ensure that restaurants are included in federal policy. The Independent Restaurant Coalition is a group of chefs that came together at the beginning of the pandemic uh, to try and save the restaurant industry. She's one of the co-founders of the Independent Restaurant Coalition, called the IRC for short. I don't think any of us knew that there was 500,000 independent restaurants. I mean, I'm sure somebody did. Um, but as, the, as we were talking on these calls, as the chefs and the restaurateurs, we really did not understand that was the number. We didn't understand that independent restaurants employed 11 million people. Restaurants in total employ something like 16 million people. That's a huge, huge number. And because we are, because we employ those people, we are putting so much money back into the economy. And, you know, we all talk about how, you know, restaurants sort of operate on these thin margins. Well, because we operate on these thin margins, it means that we're actually putting, again, so much more money back into the economy. You know, we say it's like a 10% uh, margin that we operate on or maybe 5%. That means nine for every dollar that we take in, 90 cents goes back out into the economy. That's huge. 
Robert St. John is the owner of the New South Restaurant Group in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. He's another member of the IRC who's worried about the future of the restaurant industry. I think it was 100,000 restaurants in the first eight months just shuttered their doors and closed. Uh, one in six restaurants at this point, as we talk right here in early December, one in six restaurants have closed. I think it was like maybe uh, 10,000 last week or something like It's just crazy. Not only are restaurants closing, but Robert says the way to save them is different from other industries because of how restaurants operate. The small windows for lunch and dinner hours mean that unlike most stores, restaurants don't have guests trickle in and out all day. This has been a problem throughout the pandemic. Basically, you're looking at three hours a day. And what was happening then, and it's still happening now, and even more so, uh, is you drop that to 50% seating capacity, and it just doesn't work. It's a model that doesn't work. Because the first decisions a restaurateur makes before he or she gets into the restaurant business is about seating capacity. It's how many seats am I going to have? And that determines what my management budget's going to be, what I'm going to be able to pay for rent or mortgage payments, everything. Everything is based on seating capacity, how many times going to turn those seats, my check average, all those type things. And so when you're dealing with a, a three-hour window of opportunity to do business for the most part, a little before, a little after, and then 50% seating capacity, it just does not work. I think whatever relief Congress comes up with is going to have to have, to save the independent restaurant industry, it's going to have to have some industry-specific relief for restaurants because we are such a different animal and we are so impacted by this pandemic. Anything less than that, you're going to see this, this industry pretty much just decimated, if not wiped out altogether. Specifically, the IRC has been pushing the Senate to pass the Restaurants Act, a $120 billion act that would provide direct relief to restaurants. It stands for Real Economic Support that Acknowledges Unique Restaurant Assistance Needed to Survive. So the Restaurant Act is a grant. It's based on your previous year's revenue. Uh, I I think it's nine months of it. And it is 100% a grant. The act passed in the House of Representatives in early October, but wasn't included in the year-end relief package that passed at the 11th hour before Congress went on recess. Instead, small business relief will come from a second round of the Paycheck Protection Program, or PPP, which originally passed as part of the CARES Act in March. The PPP offers restaurants loans as opposed to grants. Amanda already faces uncertainty about the first PPP loan she accepted, and when I spoke to her just over a week ago, she didn't feel ready to take on another. But at this point, we actually aren't 100% sure how it's going to be forgiven. So I'm not quite sure why I should be expected to take it when I still don't know how my first PPP is going to get forgiven. That just is mind-boggling to me. So the only thing I feel really comfortable accepting or applying for is a grant where I don't have to, you know, sort of get more and more into debt. PPP loans are forgivable if used for specific expenses, like rent and payroll, whereas the Independent Restaurant Coalition has lobbied for the Restaurants Act to be free of such restrictions. So the PPP started off as a two-month sort of band-aid, and then it uh, became a four-month band-aid, but that wasn't enough time. And it also 
it was based on how many full-time employees you could hire back to get, and, and that's how you were able to get forgiveness. Well, we're in an industry where, certainly in New York City um, and many cities around the country, where there's no point in hiring back our full-time employees because <laughs> we don't have enough business for that. Another difference between the two plans is how funds are distributed. PPP funding is distributed primarily through private banks. The Restaurants Act proposes that grants be distributed through the Treasury Department. And also, unlike the PPP, which was really hard for a lot of restaurants to access, particularly minority and BIPOC-owned restaurants, there is a provision in the Restaurant Act uh, that for the first two weeks, that that is who is able to apply. And one of the things that happened with the PPP, and we're starting to see these numbers come out now, is the first people to get it and the first people to take the bulk of the money are the ones who had the better relationships with their banks, the ones who had more debt with their banks, and the ones who had more access to capital. And so the smaller mom-and-pop restaurants, they just don't have those relationships. And the Restaurant Act is set up to help them first. Without aid that meets the particular needs of restaurants, Amanda believes there will be long-lasting consequences for hospitality workers and businesses there's this sort of idea that those jobs will reappear. And and the reality is maybe like 10 years down the road, they'll reappear, but those jobs are not going to sort of magically reappear in the next year or two. Once the restaurants close, they're closed. They're not going to be reopened again. And it's going to take a long time to get the economy back up and running. If, you know, restaurants don't just go into like hibernation, let's say for a couple of months, but they officially close. And then the other thing that you lose, I mean, and and this sounds a little bit more loosey-goosey, but you're going to lose a huge amount of sort of cultural goodwill and and sort of our cultural economy. It's going to, it will disappear. And so the reason that, you know, we have tourists, (laughs) they come to see Broadway and they come to see lots of, you know, unique sites in America, but they also come to eat here. Uh, Gastro tourism is huge and we will lose that. And our cities, instead of sort of being these really vibrant communities, will become these mono communities with really unexciting uh, culinary uh, neighborhoods. The members of the Independent Restaurant Coalition represent the people who will be directly impacted by the Restaurants Act. And they helped shape the legislation. Robert has been working with his friend, Mississippi Senator Roger Wicker. Representative Earl Blumenauer out of Oregon uh, started writing a bill first in the House that is the House version of the Restaurants Act, and I had been working with Senator Wicker and his staff. You know, I was the conduit, I guess, between Senator Wicker's office and the collective voices of the IRC and kind of, you know, what what was needed for independent restaurants. And, and you know, and so it was kind of a, a heady space to be in for, for some, you know, guy from South Mississippi with a few restaurants to be talking to people in, in Congress up in DC about $120 billion and, and, and no one was laughing. That's how strange the times were. Senator Wicker introduced the bill to the Senate in June. I mean, it's both sides of the aisle. You've got, uh, you've got Chuck Schumer and Dick Durbin on one side and you've got Lindsey Graham and John Cornyn on the other side. I mean, they're both sides. We only have a matter of weeks. They're gonna break for Christmas here soon. And it will be criminal if they break uh, without some type of specific restaurants act. 
Even though the Restaurants Act wasn't included in the recent stimulus package, it still has widespread support. In total, the bill has more than 50 co-sponsors across political parties, including Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. That means the bill would have enough votes to pass the Senate if it made it to the floor. But the bill hasn't been released by the Senate Finance Committee yet, and not everyone is totally supportive. Here's Senator Tammy Duckworth, one of the co-sponsors of the bill, speaking at a virtual town hall with the Illinois Restaurant Association on December 11th. Well, there has been some pushback from folks who did not want a bill that was specifically a grant program targeted to a single industry. And this is more a philosophical one from some of the more conservative members of the Senate, which makes no sense because we certainly targeted aviation industry, right? We actually, we put like $38 billion in the bill for aviation, specifically for the airlines. I don't know why we wouldn't have a grant program directly for restaurants. The $900 billion stimulus package that passed this week does provide a lifeline to small businesses through the PPP, but it's not the robust relief the IRC was hoping for. In fact, the IRC released a statement saying, quote, this bill falls woefully short. Here's Amanda Cohen. This is something that, you know, should have been passed two months ago. We don't have time for all these details anymore. Restaurants are going to start closing. And You know, we kind of said these things months ago, and I don't think, I think people believed us, but I think it was sort of this, well, that's months down the road. And we were like, well, winter is coming. It's going to get really bad. And I I just don't, I don't even sure I believed it, (laughs) to be honest. Um, I just couldn't fathom what was about to happen. And and here we are, and we are desperate. And, you know, the mental toll this is taking, the economic toll this is taking, there is... It's just too much. I don't think a lot of restaurants are going to be able to stay open through it. President-elect Biden has voiced support for grants for independent restaurants, as well as other progressive goals to build a more equitable food system. With the PPP as a stopgap, the Independent Restaurants Coalition hopes the Restaurants Act can be renegotiated under the new administration. In their statement, the IRC said that, quote, It's clear Congress wants to help us, and we gave them a plan to do that. This legislation isn't it. As the nation prepares to endure a lonely and difficult winter amid the COVID-19 surge, the IRC will continue to advocate for the survival of their industry and wants to see the same from our legislators, saying, quote, Congress must return in January with a renewed commitment to the thousands of people working in independent restaurants who will lose their jobs in 2021 without swift action. A new year and a new administration offer hope, but uncertainty lingers about the future of our food system. For small businesses, some relief is on the way, but the first few months of 2021 will reveal whether a more sustainable solution is in store. For independent farmers and tribal nations, making change requires a longer course of action. But even developing legislation for the 2023 Farm Bill will be greatly impacted by the outlook of new leadership at the USDA. The stimulus package is a positive sign, but only time will reveal the resilience of our food system. This has been the final episode of The Big Food Question for 2020. Stay tuned for our continuing coverage in 2021. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to The Big Food Question wherever you get your podcasts. Check back often as we address critical questions for eaters, operators, and workers across food topics and business sectors. 
If you have questions you'd like the show to answer, email us at question at heritageradionetwork.org. Special thanks for this episode to Hailey Johnston, Colby Duran, Amanda Cohen, Robert St. John, Shakira Hill-Taylor, the Metropolitan Group, and the Rockefeller Foundation. The Big Food Question is produced by Kat Johnson, Hannah Forden, Dylan Hoyer, Matt Patterson, Luke Griffin, and Jenny Dorsey, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with lead production for this episode by Dylan Hoyer and additional production by Kevin Chang-Barnum. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. The Big Food Question is powered by Simplecast. The content of this series is provided for general information only and should not be considered professional advice. You should obtain professional or specialist advice before taking or refraining from any action on the basis of this content. This project is funded in part by a Humanities New York CARES grant with support from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Federal CARES Act. This program is also supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. The Big Food Question is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio.